One woman, one horse, one goal. 48 states for domestic violence awareness. Hello and welcome to Have Horse Will Travel, the official podcast for the Centaur Ride. I'm Meredith Cherry and this is my co-host Apollo. I know this is the episode you have been waiting for. That's right. This is your questions answered. I have been getting questions submitted to me from all over. All sorts of people have been writing in with their questions and I am going to be answering them today. If you have a question that I haven't answered, please send me an email or Facebook message or a carrier pigeon, whatever you want to send me to get me your message. And I will try to include your question in a future episode. Our first question today comes from Diane, who asks, how is Apollo? So this question and this podcast are being recorded during my winter break. And Apollo is living in New Hampshire while I am back home in California waiting to be able to get back on the road again. And so he is doing well, thank you. He is hanging out with a couple of new horse friends who he has for neighbors for the winter in a cozy little barn and seems to be enjoying himself. I do post pictures on Facebook as often as I get them. So if you would like to get updates on Apollo through the winter or on the both of us and our journey throughout the year, be sure to follow on Facebook or on my blog. Links to both of those are in the podcast description. Pam asks, how do you pick your exact route? Well, Pam, there is an entire episode devoted to answering this question, 40-ish minutes of detailed, detailed answers to this question that was in Season 1, Episode 6. But if you would like the short answer, I will go ahead and give that right now. Basically, magic. It's a very complicated, convoluted sort of process. I will oversimplify it by saying there are three parts to how I pick the route. The first part is my big overall U.S. map where I look at the shortest and most convenient way to get to all 48 states. And then from there, as I get to each region on that map, I look at where I can find places to stop for each night. And then the third step is picking the actual roads that I will take between each stop. And the trickiest part of all of this is finding those stops. I only go 10 to 15 miles every day, and sometimes 20, but generally 10 to 15 miles. And so I need a lot of places to stay. Most nights I stay on private property. I get invited to stay at people's homes or barns or boarding stables or businesses. So I have to connect with a lot of people to do that. I obviously don't 
already know people every 10 to 15 miles in the whole country. So it's a lot of networking. And that's the hardest and most important element of planning my route. And then from there, I can pick my roads and I try to stick to the quiet roads. If possible, I'll take a rail trail or some sort of multi-purpose trail, but those are not usually available. Usually I'm on the roads and as quiet of a road as possible, although I will take highways if necessary. Shelly asks, where will you go this year approximately and do I need places to stay? Well, as I was just mentioning, I do definitely need places to stay. I am always networking. I'm always trying to meet more people. Anyone listening, if you have friends anywhere, tell them about this podcast or about my Facebook page or website and let them know that I'm doing this ride and they can also spread the word and this is how it's done. It's just the more people that know about it, the more help I can get in trying to find somewhere safe to stop each night. As far as where I'm going this year approximately, my goal for the year is to ride the Atlantic coast, the east coast. So I will be starting in New Hampshire, where Apollo is right now, and I will ride out to the coast at Maine, and then I will go more or less along the coast down to Florida, although I might go inland a little bit, but I'll be in the states that border the ocean. So that's the plan for this year. With coronavirus causing all sorts of problems for everybody, And with the travel restrictions going on with that, I don't know if I'll be able to ride the entire coast or just part of the coast because I'm not sure when I'll be able to start my ride this year. But the goal at this point is to hopefully still be able to do the whole coast. And if I don't do it this year, then I will do it next year. Then after that, I still have all of the southeastern states to do as well, all the way over to Louisiana and then up to Tennessee and Arkansas. So there's still 17 states to go as of the time that this episode is being released. And so still many thousands of miles to go. And I can use all the help that any of you want to give in trying to find places to stay along that route. Lori asks, How much trouble or ease have you had making contacts for places to stay? I have been doing pretty well. Some days are definitely easier than others, so it really has varied. Some days have been almost impossible (laughs) and have been very close to not finding somewhere at the end of the day. Most days are easier and don't require a lot of work, maybe a few calls or a few levels of networking. You know, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and that's who I end up staying with. Some days are super easy and I have too many offers for an area, although that doesn't happen very often. That's pretty rare that I have to turn someone down, but it does happen. Every once in a while, I'll find somewhere where everyone in town wants me to stay with them. And that's awesome. And I can't, unfortunately, take everyone up on that offer. But it's a nice problem to have. Uh, But most of the time, it's not terrible hard. It's just 
a lot of work and a lot of time spent in talking with people and explaining what I'm doing and explaining what I need until I finally get it all worked out. An anonymous fan asks, what do you do in the winter? That is an excellent question. I do not ride in the winter. I suspect that was what the question initially was asking, like, do I ride through the winter? But I don't. I did start the ride on January 1st of 2017, but it was only raining in the areas I was riding through for the winter months when I started. So rain is okay, but I will not ride in snow. And so every winter since then, I have stopped for the winter. Also by that time of the year, Apollo and I both need time off. So the winters are spent in rest. He gets to just completely rest, play and eat and sleep and play and eat and sleep and enjoy being a horse, doing horsey things all the time. I spend the winters at home seeing my family that I don't get to see while I'm out riding. So, you know, I get a little homesick out on the road, but I know I get to come home in winter. And I spend every winter writing a new book so you can enjoy my stories from the previous year on the road. After every year's ride, I have another book with more stories. And those are also called Have Horse Will Travel and they're available on Amazon. Most winters I have worked. This winter, instead of working, I've been a full-time grad student. And then there's stuff that I do for fun. I like to knit. I like to do various arts and crafts projects. I like to cook and hike. And what I really like to do that I can only do in the winter is be a mermaid. And So I would like to introduce to you today the mermaid that first told me about mermaiding and what it is and how to do it, Mermaid Liberty. Hello. Thank you for joining me on my show. Can you explain to our listeners who you are, what you do, and why? Absolutely. My name is Mermaid Liberty, and (laughs) I am an international mermaid instructor. So what I do is I teach people how to swim like a mermaid. (laughs) I also am the founder of the nonprofit Mendocino Mermaids. We're a beach cleanup club. We're a 501c3, and we've removed over 800 pounds of garbage off the beaches of the Mendocino Coast in the last year and a half. That's amazing. Yeah, they're a really great group of people. I love them all. I just have to say that you are like my role model. Like, I want to be a professional mermaid, too. If only I had time. Maybe when I'm done with the ride. Right? Uh, exactly. But, and I, you're also my role model. I'm super <laughs> jealous of your ride. I, I love what you're doing. It's been amazing to watch. Well, thank you. So someday I'd like to be able to say that I'm a professional mermaid and not just floundering around in the pool for my own fun. (laughs) So for someone who's never met a real mermaid before, what does it mean to be a mermaid? Well, what it it means different things to different people. Uh, Some people do it because they want to do the glamour, so they'll you know they'll wear they'll get a really nice silicone tail and a really cute top and makeup and wigs and they do like birthday parties and I've done a few of those and those are really fun. So they're just kind of like entertainment at a party. 
And some of them don't actually swim. They just want to be a model. So they'll model on the beach. They'll do, do different modeling shoots, maybe, maybe professionally. So it just, it depends on what you want to do with it. There are some mermaids who just want the exercise. They don't even put a tail on over their monofin. They just swim with the monofin back and forth in the pool just to get the core workout. So the I've, I have noticed personally that my posting trot has become effortless since I started monofinning, which is pretty uh, wonderful. Yeah. And some mermaids, and this is kind of the category where I fall in, we're into the breath hold diving. So we actually put on our mermaid tails, and we go free diving out in the ocean, and we you know hold our breath as long as we can. We do breath hold training. You know, we're divers. <laughs> we're not so much into the, the glamour as we are into the actual physical process of free diving. We just throw on a mermaid tail and make it look cute. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things that I love about using my monofin is the core workout. I have found nothing like it that builds up the strength in my tummy muscles. And actually, the motion reminds me a lot of cantering. Uh, when I get my hips going the way it's supposed to be, to propel myself in the water reminds me a lot of the same movements when you're sitting the canter nicely. Right. Uh, can you expand upon this for how mermaiding is great for <laughs> for riders? Absolutely. <laughs> I've been trying to convince our entire horse community to come swim with me because my riding and my seat and all of those above – have improved my core strength, everything have improved tenfold since I started mermaiding. When you're doing the mermaid motion, the motion doesn't come from the fin. The fin is just a stabilizer. Or if you're trying to go really fast for a short spurt, like you'll use the fin, your motion, and because you can actually do the mermaiding without a fin on, the motion actually comes from the core. It's generated from your midsection. So when you're swimming, like right in in your your rib cage, you're undulating... (laughs) In your ribcage, kind of like belly dancing, uh, mm-hmm. but you're going up and down. And you actually have to isolate each of those muscle groups all the way through your hips and roll through from your ribcage to your hips to get propulsion, just like a dolphin. And then the tail is more like the, the monofin on the tail is more of a stabilizer. And you don't really paddle uh, with it. Most people get the tail on and they want to paddle a bunch and they get worn out really quickly and they're, you know, they're not using the appropriate muscle groups. It's really isolated core movement that causes you to actually swim, which is really, <laughs> it really is a great workout. And I wish that more riders would join our club in our endeavors because, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, that can really improve from that. The other thing mm-hmm. that I've noticed in using a, a monofin is that you have to use both sides of your body equally. So when you're when you're going through the mermaiding motion, if you're not using your body symmetrically, you will start uh, one leg will start extending beyond the other. You'll start to roll in one direction. So in order to actually stay accurate as you're moving through the water, you have to use both sides equally. So if you're a person like myself who struggles with symmetry, it's a really good exercise for that too. Is that why I've been running into the side of the pool? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> God. You know, I, I, you know, my very first time in a monofin, I face planted at the bottom of the pool. It's pretty great. Oh. <laughs> and then that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to invest in some goggles so I can see what I'm doing. I actually wore goggles while mermaiding for the first time today. Nice. Normally I would just 
like get the chlorine in my eyes and it was wonderful it was amazing how much it helped yeah I do all of my training in goggles just to protect my eyes and then you know if I'm going to be doing an underwater photo shoot or you know competition or something like that then I'll go without them but I keep the training to a minimum just because you know exposing your eyes to chlorine over and over is not fun (laughs) Speaking of getting the water in your eyes, tell us about the experience of swimming with a, was it an alligator? It was an alligator. There were actually six alligators. <laughs> so the pictures uh, were incredible. I'm glad you liked them. I love them too. <laughs> yeah. It was an incredible experience. Uh, so there's a place in Florida and they have a wildlife sanctuary and I did a fundraiser with them and we raised about $450 for me to swim in my silicone, you know, 25-pound silicone mermaid tail in gator-infested lagoon. Like, (laughs) it was amazing. Uh, There's a guy named Crocodile Chris, and he runs their, you know, they have a man-made lagoon that's made to look really natural. And there were about six gators in the water. And so when I first got in the water, I, I, I had my my free diving mask, and I put it on and, you know, gave the pull a scan so I could locate where every single gator was. <laughs> and then I, you know, tossed him up on the side, and I was like, okay, well, here we go, because once you're underwater, it's so blurry, you can't really see much. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to do is bump into uh, an alligator that's swimming underwater. Saying <laughs> right. so I noticed after I got out of the water, my eyes were burning from the gator piss in the water. That's and awesome. I had really, really bad red blurry eyes. I had to go to bed and it clear it's just kinda like when you're at the the pool and you're swimming in the chlorine event. It's just like that, only I knew it wasn't chlorine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well that is a really cool thing. Yeah. It was what was really amazing uh, one of those alligators is over 11 feet long, and his name is Casper. And that was the one we were really focused on spending time with. And so I'm in my mermaid tail, and we're swimming side by side. And sometimes I would sink down, and he would swim over the top of me. And just being in the water with an animal that graceful, that strong, and that much capable of actually, you know, killing you. <laughs> It was a very humbling experience, and it was also very beautiful. There was something very almost prehistoric about it, I guess I would say, just being in the water and swimming freely next to such a big, powerful creature. It was uh, almost indescribable, <laughs> and yeah. I, w- I would do it again in a minute. It was amazing. That's so cool. So tell me about your cleanup efforts. You do beach cleanups very often from what I've been seeing on your Facebook posts. So we have uh, the Mendocino Mermaids nonprofit, and this is another aspect of you were asking, like, what are the di- what are the different kinds of mermaiding? <laughs> so some people are all about the activism. So we actually have a couple of mermaids. We offer a professional photo shoot at the end of every beach cleanup uh, as a reward to our mermaids, and also to get attention. Like it's a <laughs> it's it's kind of a, a spectacle. So when you know people are on the beach and we clean the beach, and then afterwards they see you know six people in mermaid tails getting their pictures taken. Sometimes they'll come up and talk to us about it and like, what are you doing? And we get to open a dialogue about you know trash on our beaches. And mm-hmm. 
there's some mermaids that have absolutely no interest in actually putting a tail on, but they're really into the beach cleanup effort. And, you know, they'll come to swim practice and swim in a tail, but they're not as focused on the glamour aspect or or, anything, or, you know, or the diving aspect. They're into the ocean conservation, which is really, you know, the heart and core of, of what being a mermaid is. So we, you know, we encourage each other and, you know, and others to make, you know, small changes. Maybe it's switching from a plastic toothbrush to a bamboo toothbrush, like small changes in your own life that can contribute to, you know, the greater good of having a clean ocean and a clean environment. Once a month, we do a sponsored beach cleanup, and we show up, we provide all the tools, and we announce it to the community and try to get people involved, and then we all comb the beach together and gather everything, and then we bring it back to the truck, and we, we sort it, and then we weigh it. We, we, are, we are under the jurisdiction of state parks, so we have to report, like, how many pounds of garbage did we get. You know, everyone has to sign in on the state parks liability sheet, and then, you know, we write down how much garbage we got, and then we mail that to them afterwards. And then I take all of the garbage back to my house and then sort it into bins appropriately. And any cash redeemables will take in a couple of times a year, and the money goes back into the club to try to uh, continue our beach cleanup efforts. That's wonderful. Yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, I bet. I, I kind of feel like we're we're like a... a an exercise program in disguise, <laughs> making people walk the beach for miles, <laughs> making people swim laps in a monofin. It's not easy. No, it's not. <laughs> no, something I particularly like in seeing your mermaiding posts and videos and whatnot is the variety of people that are in your club. What kind of people is mermaiding a good kind of sport or activity for? We love everybody. <laughs> we have quite the variety. I think at this point, I think we have 20, about 25 members. Mm-hmm. And we are all, all to different types and colors. <laughs> we would love to see more men. <laughs> the mermaiding aspect, you know, kind of intimidates a lot of men. They don't want to put a tail on. And we do have one male, uh, mer person that we they call them they're non-binary so they call themselves a mer, mer person and mm-hmm. they're the most beautiful swimmer of all of us and we're all super jealous of of their beautiful mermaid form they they have the the motion down and they are absolutely the most beautiful swimmer that we have uh, we have our youngest mermaids uh, have four years old coming in to swim with us our oldest mermaid member is in her 70s. So we, we straight across the board, we have quite the collection, different ethnicities, different walks of life, different lifestyles. I mean, it, it is definitely a variety of people, and it's really brought this huge group together. Like some of us are horseback riders, some of us are, some of us work at a desk, and, you know, you wouldn't see us together as a group anywhere else but this has really brought us together and really it's just a love of community and we exercise together and we clean the beaches together and we make videos and I I don't think I've ever had just such simple good fun with a group (laughs) in my entire life it's just uh you know they they're really like it's it's really one of those when they say oh it's like family and like that's super true like we know that if something goes wrong in your life and you need help, like any one of the mermaids is going to show up at your door and help you out. 
it's like that kind of group, and they're just a wonderful, wonderful group of people. I'm the only mermaid in the area here that I'm aware of. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, that's how I started. I am kind of jealous. But how can anyone who's interested in learning about mermaiding or meeting a mermaid or whatever, how can someone get involved in this? So depending on where you live, um, I have a mermaid school where we teach uh, basics and intermediate. And you can visit my website at www.mermagic.com. And magic is spelled with a C-K. Or you can go on Google and try to you know, punch it into Google and find mermaid groups in your area. When I started mermaiding a few years ago, I was a lone mermaid. And I would go to the pool and... You know, the lap swimmers would give me really weird looks, and I was just like in a mermaid tail. The lifeguards were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, I was I was a lone mermaid, and that went on for months, and I couldn't find a mermaid group. I was like, I need a pod. I'm a lone mermaid, and I need a pod. And the nearest one is like three and a half hours away. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start my own pod. And so I started holding uh, swim practices, and, you know, like, no one showed up for months. <laughs> and then finally, you know, I had one person who was like, yeah, I'll do this. And then, I, you know, I was like, okay, well, we're going to do beach cleanups too. And for a while there, it was just like two of us and then uh, our, a third member. And then once there were about three of us in tails, the floodgates opened. And all of a sudden, all of those shy, self-conscious people who were too shy to do it were like, you know what? You guys are doing it, so I'm going to do it too. <gasps> And everyone who secretly wanted to be a mermaid suddenly was just like, I'm going to be a mermaid. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful process of people getting less shy and more confident to to try something that's, you know, can from the outside can look a little silly. But at the end of the day, like, we're happy and healthy and we're, you know, doing good things for our community. And there's there's nothing silly about that. That's that's for sure. I feel like it may seem silly to put on a mermaid tail, but no matter what you look like or what kind of personality you are or whatever, it's just the most beautiful, enlivening, amazing sort of feeling to swim around in a mermaid tail. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Like, we have a creed where we don't discriminate, you know, for race, sexual orientation, you know, body type. Like, there's no body shaming. You don't have to have the, you know, the ideal mermaid aerial body. Like, we don't do any of that. Like, we are fully open, like, come one, come all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it really is a beautiful thing to get under the water and propel yourself around using your core and just be able to, like, I don't know, <laughs> for me personally, I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> Without a tail, I am an awful swimmer. Uh, when I put a mermaid tail on, it was, I love the water, so I've always, you know, gone in the water, but I never learned how to swim. I didn't take my, my first swimming lesson until I was 33 years old, and that was for PFI freediving. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and now, now today, I'm, you know, I'm a Title 22 public rescuer, open water lifeguarding, you know, I do scuba, I do the, you know, I'm a certified free diver, and now I'm a certified mermaid instructor, and, but I'm still without fins, I'm a pretty, <laughs> I was a pretty bad swimmer, I had to, you know, get some hardcore uh, training to become a better swimmer, but uh -huh. when you put a tail on, it's all of a sudden, it's like, 
you're just good. <laughs> you, you can do things in the tail that you would never think about. Like swimming across the top of water is a lot different than going underneath and staying underneath. When you dive down underneath the water, you know, it cuts out all the noise and, you know, you're completely surrounded. You're on breath hold, so that's a little bit different for your, your body. When you're on the surface, you know, you're, you know, fighting against the water. When you dive, you're one with the water, and that's probably the easiest way for me to try to put it into words. Well, I, I aspire to someday be one with the water and not feel like I'm struggling. <laughs> it's a lot of fun anyway, even whenever I don't feel like my form is very good. Right? Um, it is so and, much and fun. such good strength training. Yeah, it's a lot harder than it looks. How about that? <laughs> well... I hope that inspires some people to look up mermaiding and give it a try. Definitely, I would recommend anyone in Northern California to head out to Mendocino and visit you guys and try out a tale with Mermaid Liberty. So thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The next question comes from Casey, who asks... What has been your favorite local food you've tried on the ride? Well, Casey, that is so hard for me to pick. I have so many favorites. Oh my gosh. I love being a food traveler. I travel with the daily goal in mind to find interesting and delicious things to eat. So everywhere I go, I'm always on the lookout for little hole-in-the-wall places to eat local cafes or bakeries or breweries or local foods, especially foods that are only really available in that region. Some interesting things that I found have been lefsa, which is a Scandinavian potato flour crepe tortilla flatbread sort of food. It's made more like a tortilla, but it tastes more like a crepe. And you eat it usually with some butter and sugar in the middle, wrapped up. It's delicious. That is something I have only seen in the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Minnesota area. In New Mexico, I love the New Mexican food. New Mexican cuisine is perhaps, well, it's definitely on my favorites list. And I wouldn't pick one thing there in particular. I just like all of it. It's different than other sorts of Mexican food or Americanized Mexican food from other regions. And one of the things I like about it is that it has a lot of roasted green chilies in it. That's delicious. <laughs> and so I love my, my chilies and roasted green chilies are wonderful. So I love going to Seattle to eat, and also Portland is a great food destination. There's lots of great places to eat in both of those cities and surrounding towns as well. Too many to name. There's, you can get so many good things in both of those places. So if you like to travel to eat, that should be on your bucket list of places to visit. I love going through the Northeast in maple country and all of the maple things you can eat there. Maple candies are just melt-in-your-mouth ambrosia and maple-flavored everything. I learned this last year to put maple in my coffee, which I now do regularly when I can get it instead of other sweeteners. 
uh, to add maple syrup, and that's divine. And then there's been interesting things, like in Idaho, land of the potato, they don't use ketchup for their fries or tots. They use fry sauce, which is something that only Idahoans do, but everybody should do. It's pretty much a mixture of mayo and ketchup with a little bit of Worcestershire mixed in, which is way better than ketchup, really. But definitely also something that is not anything you'd find anywhere else. So that sort of stuff is fun to look for. There's been also interesting things that I haven't really enjoyed, but that are fun to try when you travel around anyway. I don't really like hush puppies. That's something that's very Southern. And a lot of Southern food I do like, but I don't really like hush puppies. But Apollo loves them, so he usually gets my hush puppies when I have them come as a side for something I've ordered and I don't really want them. That was a terrible long answer to a simple question, and I like to eat, and there are so many good things to eat everywhere that it's impossible to pick just one. Destiny asks... I know you've been able to attend a few fairs during your travels. Which has been your favorite and why? My favorite was definitely the New York State Fair. I'm sorry, the Great New York State Fair. That's the official name. It is great. They call it great and it is great. It was just so full of fun things to see and do and demonstrations to watch and shows and food. It was just fabulous. So I really enjoyed being able to spend two days just immersing myself in that fair. That was also the biggest fair that I've ever been to. The smallest was in Vermilion, South Dakota, and it took up exactly one tiny street and a little city park that was along that street. And on the other side of the street, there were a couple of 4-H barns as well. And so it was extremely tiny. You could see the whole thing in an hour, maybe, if you were taking your time. But it was such a wonderful community event. I spent the better part of a day there. Most of it was just watching the people, just enjoying seeing the community come together for this fair. But every fair has its own unique character. And that's part of why I love going to fairs, is that you can go to a fair in any part of the country and go to a fair in a different part of the country, and it'll be completely different. I mean, they'll still have a lot of the same stuff. There's going to be 4-H goats and 4-H cattle at all the fairs. But even that, like some will also have hogs if they're in an area that has hogs and some of them will also have dairy cattle if it's a dairy area and not all of them will have all of the different kinds of livestock so there's differences there. The things that people grow for the judged produce and flowers. Of course everyone's going to have tomatoes and zucchini but in corn country they're also going to have way more categories of corn than you would get in places that are not corn country. So it's kind of fun going and seeing all the differences like that as well. But the the simple answer is that my favorite was the Great New York State Fair because they had everything. 
An anonymous fan asks, are you rich? How can you afford to do this? Well, no, I am not rich. In fact, I am definitely poor. So no, I fund this ride through the kindness of strangers. It's not a fundraiser and it's not a business. It's me out doing this ride for a domestic violence awareness because it's something that I want to do. But I do accept contributions through my GoFundMe page and my Patreon. And I also try to just minimize my costs as much as possible. And the nice thing about traveling by horse is that there are no hotel costs and there are no gasoline costs. There's no car insurance and no car payments and no anything like that. I do still, of course, have expenses, but as I said, I try to keep them to a minimum and it is funded through the generosity of the people I meet and the people that follow. And so if you would like to support, please check out the links for GoFundMe and Patreon that are in this podcast description. So thank you all for listening. I hope you have gotten some of your questions answered. If I did not answer what you wanted to know, send me a message and I will do my best to answer your question in a future episode. In the meantime, come back and listen to next week's episode, which is all about how I pack for this ride. All of the gear and some of the tack that I use for traveling over 8,000 miles so far. And of course, you can find information anytime at my website, www.centaurride.org, C-E-N-T-A-U-R-I-D-E dot O-R-G, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please follow along, come back and listen to more episodes, and until next time, bye-bye. Thank <sniffs> you.